The <clears throat> big question now is how to work with the practice, how to continue it, how to deepen it, as you leave the retreat environment. There's one basic principle which is at the foundation of carrying the practice into our daily lives. And it's a principle that's hard to sustain in our minds as we get busy in the world. It's extremely fundamental. And that is that there is no essential difference between being on retreat and being outside of retreat. It's the same mind-body process going on and continuing. It's the same sequence of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, whether we're sitting in the hall or in the dining room or walking down the streets of New York or Boston. Life is of a piece in that way. It's not fragmented into discrete units of experience. Rather, it's an organic unfolding. And somehow we have to remember that every situation that we're in is equally deserving of our attention, of our awareness. Very often people create the idea or concept that the real meditation happens here and that outside of the retreat center we can sort of practice you know, and try to maintain it, but it's not the same thing. That's a faulty concept and it leads to a real fragmentation of our lives, a separation out of what our Dharma practice is from the rest of our lives. What this means is that we have a responsibility in leaving the retreat and getting involved in all the thousand things that we do We have a responsibility, if there's a commitment to deepening our understanding, to stay present, to surrender or trust the experience of the moment. And it's not difficult to do, although it's difficult to remember to do. So when we're walking down the streets of wherever, the walking is happening. You know, the contact of the feet in the ground is happening. The sensation is there. It's nothing extra that we have to add to things. It's simply remembering to stay present, 
remembering to stay connected. How to help the mind remember? There's one indispensable aid and it's the parting mantra. Just as a review of the various mantras. (laughs) Nothing is worth thinking about. (laughs) What was the one in the library? What's happening? Right. What's happening? This is the the mantra of today is the most important. It's the most secret. And if you say it a hundred thousand times a day, it guarantees enlightenment within one lifetime. (laughs) Sit every day. Sit every day. Sit every day. Seems like that's an easy mantra, doesn't it? It's not. You know, we just finished a retreat and we've been sitting so much. And there's the idea that you're going to go back and it's going to be a snap, you know. You're going to sit two, three, four hours a day and get up early. And I'm going to really do it. (laughs) It's amazing how quickly the mind finds reasons and excuses and justifications. There has to be really a deep commitment to the daily sitting practice. You have to make it a priority in the day. You have to arrange the day around the sitting, rather than trying to squeeze the sitting in between different things. Because if you try squeezing the sitting in, what happens very quickly is that it gets squeezed out. It's the, it's the daily sitting practice which is going to be the strongest reminder to the mind to come back to the moment. The strongest reminder of the simplicity of practice. It will be the strongest reminder that we don't have to stay so identified or involved with the story that we create about our lives, our experience, ourselves. That there's another level of experience or reality outside of the script, outside of the story, outside of our concepts about things. And it's this reminder that's going to be strengthened in the sitting, which will then carry through, to some extent, the rest of the day. People often ask, how long should I sit? How often should I sit? How many times a day? You really have to find for yourself what works for you. Some general guidelines. It seems helpful to sit for about 45 minutes or an hour. Because as you've probably noticed, it takes time for the mind to settle down, to get, to get a bit concentrated deeply attentive. 
So if you sit for just 15 or 20 minutes, it's as if just as the mind is beginning to settle down, then you get up, so you miss the fruit of it. Once a day, sitting once a day is survival. Really, it's survival. (laughs) Twice a day is maintaining. With a slight slight, uh, inclination of deepening. Three times a day, four times a day, five times a day. (laughs) Gets better all the time. If you can work with two sittings a day, it's great. Once is absolutely minimal. Sometimes what happens for people is they, they leave the retreat with a strong commitment to sit. And then as their life gets, lives get busier and more active, continue with the sitting, but the mind is not quite so concentrated or mindful. And so then the judging process starts. You know, well, this is useless. I'm just sitting and thinking for the whole hour. Might as well, you know, have the extra hour sleep or whatever. Be watchful of that judging mind. It doesn't matter. You sit. Remember the mantra, sit every day. Let what happens happen. Sometimes the mind will settle in, it'll be clear and concentrated and focused, and sometimes you'll sit and you'll be thinking the whole hour, it's fine. It may be that that's what has to happen, just the release of that accumulation. It's the continual dedication or application of right effort in the sitting practice, which is really what keeps our Dharma understanding unfolding and deepening. There's a little trick which you might use in terms of making your sitting as focused as possible. And that is, if you have the the space or the time, and I think you'll be able to find it, even if you walk for just five or ten minutes before you sit, just the slow meditative walking, lifting, moving, placing. Five or ten minutes before the sitting, you'll see that you then come into the sitting with a mind that's already focused and already concentrated. And the quality of the sitting is tremendously enhanced. So it's, it's to remember that the walking is a powerful part of the practice, and even if we don't take the time to do you know, a whole hour of slow walking, even a few minutes of it before we go in to sit can tremendously affect um, the quality of the mind in the sitting. Sit every day. That's the basic principle. Use the body as a vehicle of attention. The first foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana discourse, that's the four foundations of mindfulness, the first one is mindfulness of the body. 
And the Buddha talked a lot about it, especially in terms of people leading household lives, you know, people being busy in the world, because the body is an easy object to be aware of. Be aware of the movement you know, that we make. Be aware of the touch sensations every time we take a step. You'll find that as you practice mindfulness of the body, it's a very effective way of staying grounded in the moment. Instead of being lost in our thoughts and fantasies and projections and plans and anticipations and all that activity of the mind, if we can simply pay attention to the, to the very simple aspects of our bodily experience, you'll find that the mind learns how to relax, to relax back into the moment. Keep it simple. It doesn't have to be complicated or particularly subtle. Just now, as you're sitting, can you feel the sensation sitting? When you stand up, simply to feel the experience of standing. You're walking from one room to another, from your house to your car, down some street. Just be with a simple movement and touch. You don't have to walk down the streets of Boston lifting, moving, placing, <laughs> which might seem a little odd. You can walk at a very normal pace, but be aware. Use the, use the activity to develop mindfulness. Something else that you could work with that I found very helpful is to give yourself, you know, every week just one little discipline of mindfulness. Take one small activity that you do, you know, that you do on a daily basis, and decide for this week I'm going to pay careful attention to this activity. So it might be something as simple as, you know, brushing your teeth or combing your hair or opening doors. You know, for one week, pay careful attention every time you open a door. And you'll see, because you take just a little thing, it's not experienced as particularly burdensome, rather it's, it's just a reminder through the day, right, every time you do that. If you take brushing your teeth one week and combing your hair the next week and opening doors the third week, and just you keep adding, by the next time you come back to a retreat, you'll be mindful all day long. And you will have accumulated and added all these little activities. And what's encouraging is that once the mind gets into the <coughs> habit of paying attention, just like most other habits, it begins to work by itself. We no longer have to make the effort to do it. The mindfulness is there. Be creative in ways to bring the quality of attention to the small things that we do in our lives. Now, sometimes I think we miss uh, the opportunity to actually 
integrate practice in a very meaningful way in our lives, because we create this grand conception of what it would be like to live with total awareness and sensitivity and openness. And of course, it seems like a nice idea, but totally unrealistic. And so then we give up. We don't make much of an effort at all. Rather than start with that grand conception, start with just the simplest little things. And from that, then you'll see like the flower of mindfulness, the seed even, even before it's a flower, just the seed will begin to germinate and to sprout and to grow and to flower. Gary Snyder's teacher in Japan, he had, um, when he was studying Zen, he had this one little teaching he said, in Zen or in Dharma practice, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is. We sit and we sweep the garden. Whatever our garden is, you know, in our day, it doesn't matter whether it's the garden of the kitchen floor or the garden of the office or the garden of you know, relationships, we sit and we sweep the garden. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. And it's, it's that sense of the simplicity of practice and not losing the simplicity in the convolutions of our mind. Always coming back to the moment. We sit, we walk, and we pay attention to the details, to just some little things that we do each day. There are some other areas beside mm, the cultivation of this very direct and simple attentiveness to the moment. Some other areas that we could work with. Um, they're really areas in a sense of investigation of our experience in the world. One area is working with the precepts. Because the precepts, they have a very powerful effect on the quality of our own minds and also an effect on our relationships, the people we're with, the environment. They shouldn't be seen as commandments, you know, because then that sets up a whole trip of good and evil and guilt and sin, and it's not the spirit with which they can be worked with. Rather, the precepts are mm, guidelines for us to take a look at our actions. Somebody at the Yucca Valley course, just on the closing day, uh, somebody was addressing the group for a few minutes, and she said that uh, she, had, she had been an alcoholic. And since getting into Dharma practice, and taking the precept you know, not, to, not to drink alcohol, 
for her was, that was a big one. That was a major, major commitment. She said, it, the taking of the precept became such a powerful reminder for her to look at her experience and look at her mind every time the urge there was there to go for a drink. You know, so instead of just going for it and ignoring the experience that was driving it, it's like the precept was a reminder that we could turn around instead of simply going with the desire or the energy in the moment. It's a reminder to turn the attention around and see what it is that's going on. You know, okay, what's happening now? What's the experience? What's, what's being avoided? What don't I want to feel? Same thing with the precept of not killing. You know, especially in the summertime, it's, it's a wonderful precept to take. The, the mosquito lands on the arm, and, and it's, almost, it's almost like this instinctive you know, reaction, swat. Just the force of the precept will at least cause a moment's reflection. <laughs> All right. There'll be some possibility of an alternative, because the precept will act as a reminder. I did one experiment when I was in the uh, Peace Corps, and I was just getting into Dharma practice and working in, you know, with the sitting practice and trying to understand the precepts and how they apply to my life. I was working with the uh, precept of right speech, and I made a commitment for a period of time not to speak about any third person. If I had something to say to somebody, I would say it to them, not about them, to somebody else. And what was amazing was how much of my speech was eliminated. <laughs> A lot, you know, like 90%. <laughs> First of all, it was just startling to see that, of how much of our energy, or my energy, went into talking about other people. As I refrained from that, I just took it as an experiment to see what it would be like. One thing, I became a lot more quiet, you know, just a lot more silent. And my mind became a lot more silent. Instead of kind of all this chatter going on in the mind, it became a lot more peaceful and a lot less judgmental. Because actually, speech comes out of thought. It's speech is the next level of manifestation. First is the thought, then the speech, then the action. As the speech stopped reinforcing certain thought patterns, those thought patterns begin to, began to fall away. And the mind became much less judgmental of other people, much less judgmental of myself, because that whole pattern was not being fed. These are just some examples of ways to play ways to learn about ourselves, about our experience with other people, with other beings. Be creative with it. The tremendously powerful uh, in making us more attentive, because it's a challenge 
It's a very direct challenge often to the habitual habit patterns of conditioning that have grown up over the years. It's like when we undertake a commitment to working with a particular precept or a form of it, it really challenges us to pay attention. And it's often a big help in breaking those habit patterns that are not skillful and not helpful. Working with metta, with loving-kindness, nice practice to do, either to do as part of your daily sitting, just walking down the street or sitting in a bus. Next time you're in a public, you know, a public situation, as an experiment, you know, you're walking down the street of some city, as you're walking down the street, see what happens if you start sending out loving thought. May all people on this street be happy. May everyone on this street be peaceful. The transformation of our relationship to everybody else on that street is so immediate and so radical. It's usually we're walking down the street and we feel pretty isolated and separated from everybody else. We don't know them and there's not much contact. The simple act of sending out loving thought, it's like this cloud or mist or whatever of loving feeling immediately puts us into a kind of, I don't know how you want to say, psychic or heart connectedness with them. And it changes our experience of walking down that street or sitting on the bus. It doesn't mean that you have to get up on a little, you know, soapbox and say, you know, may everyone be happy, may everyone be peaceful. (laughs) Although, (laughs) you could try that too if you like. (laughs) It can be very simple, very invisible. Do you have a sense that our experience, our minds, and the way that mind is used in the Buddhist teaching, sometimes people mishear that and associate mind with intellect. And that's not the way the word is used. In a lot of Asian languages, mind and heart are the same word. But somehow we've gotten them disjointed. And so when I say mind, I mean the whole you know, consciousness, including our hearts and our intellects. Do you have a sense of the um, the malleability and the creativity of mind? It's a force. It's not something that's kind of fixed and solid and dense and, you know, this is our mind. We're stuck with it. It's not like that. It's an energy that we can fashion and we we can create and we can mold and we can play with. And all of these ways are ways of doing it. What it takes is the quality of awareness and attentiveness and investigation and enthusiasm and interest in our experience, in our lives. Not just 
kind of playing out the old habit patterns. So all the ways that I've suggested are just, just little suggestions beginning to take an active role in the fashioning of our minds. Another mantra. Right? Sit every day. Don't be lazy. Don't be lazy, don't be lazy, don't be lazy. Because we get into a kind of laziness you know, about ourselves. Working with a sense of creativity, with a, with a joyousness about this exploration of ourselves. The world is a fantastic place to, to just keep looking and investigating what's happening because it's like it's always presenting this myriad of situations and challenges for us. In this line, another wonderful area to pay attention to is an important part of our Dharma practice and our lives, our totality of our lives, is the area of communication. You know, a lot of what we do in our lives has to do with the desire, the need, the wish to communicate and make contact with people, with, with other beings. We can look at the process of communication. How are we doing it? You'll have a very good situation to work with when you leave the retreat and you go home and people ask you, well, how was it? <laughs> what are you going to say? <laughs> the, the first step in even attempting a response is really, and it's a basic principle of communication, is being sensitive to where the other person is at. Because some people ask you, you know, well, how was it? And it'll be like saying, hi, I'm glad you're back. That's all. You know, no interest at all in how it was. <laughs> if you give them a two-hour wrap on, <laughs> you know, every knee pain that you had, <laughs> it's not appropriate. It's not communication. It's just laying your trip. Some people will really be interested. You know? And then there's another step in terms of first determining exactly where they're at and what they're really interested in and what they're interested in. And then also beginning to hear or be sensitive to what they'll be able to hear, the language that's appropriate. Because all the concepts are simply pointing to an experience. Don't get caught or attached to a particular set of concepts. It's like going out at night and you see somebody pointing up at the moon. What are you going to do? You can do one of two things. You can either look up at the moon or stare at the finger. <laughs> we stare at the finger a lot. <laughs> in terms of being attached 
to a particular set of words or ideas or concepts which are pointing to an experience, forgetting that there are a thousand different kinds of fingers that can point to the moon. And it doesn't matter because what we're after is, is the experience of seeing the moon. And so it's a tremendous challenge to be with people and to just feel out the appropriate kind of language, the appropriate kind of communication. There's one story which, which sums it up. Uh, there was a woman who was a student of Ramdas, and she went back to some place in Canada, a very fundamentalist Christian family. And they thought this woman had gotten into spiritual practice and the Dharma and meditation, and her family just got freaked out. You know, and they wanted to have her exercised or deprogrammed or whatever. And so she was having this hard time. You know, <laughs> and she wrote, she wrote this letter to Ramdas, and she ended it by saying, My family hates me when I'm a Buddhist and loves me when I'm a Buddha. Right. We don't have to be a Buddhist, and we don't have to be anything. What we can do is embody certain qualities. And the embodiment of those qualities is the most effective level of communication. Okay. It's, it's an area that we should pay attention to, because it will reveal a lot you know, our own levels of attachment and our own levels of identification or our own levels of st stillness and sensitivity. It's a tremendous joy to be present with someone else, with another being. And that being present means being open, being receptive, being silent enough so the energy can flow in and out in an easy way. One little postscript to communication. When you leave here and people, you know, your friends, your family want to know how the retreat was and are not really interested, I wouldn't start off by saying they don't exist. <laughs> and there's no self, and there's no me, and there's no you. <laughs> it probably won't work. <laughs> you can lead up to that. You know, be skillful. <laughs> okay, sitting every day, using the body, really staying mindful of the body as, as you go through the different activities picking a few small disciplines, just small things that you do every day, pick a different one every week and with, a, with a strong determination to stay very mindful of that, of that little activity. Working with the precepts, with the development of metta or loving-kindness, paying attention to areas of communication. Just a reminder of what I suggested last night about working with times of difficulty. Very fruitful 
in terms of understanding the mind. When you're suffering, really suffering, a good bout of suffering, right? <laughs> in that moment, if you, if you really investigate, the whole Four Noble Truths can be revealed. You can see, you can see the suffering and experience it and understand the cause of it, come to the end of it and see how to come to the end of it. The whole teaching can be revealed and understood at that time. But it takes the looking, it takes the investigation, the using of it, the utilizing of that, that opportunity. So value the suffering, you know, welcome it, ah, another chance to understand. The last thing, I guess, that I want to mention is just the immeasurable support of the Sangha. That is all of us, and the support that we give to one another. The Buddha talked of the development of the Dharma practice in our lives as swimming upstream. It's hard because the current of the world is going in the direction of more desire and more gratification and more wanting and more self. You know, one of, one of my favorite advertisements is this Salem cigarette commercial. You know, it's an ad in the magazines. You know, very handsome man, beautiful woman, standing in front of a waterfall, and just heaven. And, you know, smoking a cigarette. <laughs> and the caption is, I don't let anything stand in the way of my pleasure. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're dealing with. <laughs> and it's very seductive because it looks nice. <laughs> you know, maybe that'll make me happy. It's like the current of the world is flowing in that direction. And it's very precious and very rare to find a community of people who are beginning to question that, you know, and to beginning to see if there's a more skillful way of living one's life, a happier way of living one's life. And so in appreciating the support and the help that we give to one another, I mean, retreats are a good example of how we do that. But even as you're home, you know, try to sit together with other people who sit once a week or twice a week or once every two weeks, whatever is appropriate. And if there's no group sitting, you know, where, where you're living, you might start one and take the responsibility for being the focus of the Dharma energy in the place that you live. And you'll find that slowly, you know, it starts attracting people and you really, you really become a, a center of of a wonderful energy. Be patient. There were, I had friends who live right in Amherst here, who started a group sitting as a couple, and for almost a year, sometimes one person would come, two people would come, some weeks nobody would come, but they just, they just did it, and they just kept, kept having it. And I just, I just heard, you know, recently, in the last few months, 
It's like now five people are coming, ten people are coming. And it's like it builds and it grows, but you have to be patient not to, to have that sustaining energy with it. The Sangha, taking refuge in the Sangha, it's, it's a beautiful bond that's created. Okay, any questions? <laughs> they traditionally uh, there are supposed to be thirty two distinguishing marks of of a Buddha, uh, distinguishing physical characteristics. Long earlobes is one of them. Some of them get very strange. When you read the list, <laughs> you wonder <laughs> you know exactly who this being was, but <laughs> That's one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's another one. <laughs> and arms that reach down to the knees and. Right. Right. The different positions of the hands, they're called mudras. They mean different things. Uh, and when you get into a, a study of the. Uh, iconography. You know, they, they represent either a teaching mode or a, a meditative mode, different. I find it uh, more difficult to uh, stay mindful when you talk than when you think. How come? Maybe I'm the only one. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it is difficult to stay mindful when you talk. One suggestion is as you're talking, stay grounded in the awareness of your body posture. Right? Just, the, just the general sense of your posture, of sitting or standing, and let the words come out of the posture, rather than kind of letting the words explode out and your consciousness is out here someplace, right? and losing that sense of balance and groundedness. It's not difficult to stay aware of your posture. It's, you know, it's like a big object. It's the main thing that the body is doing. Um, and as you practice that, you'll see that it's almost like you can feel the, the energy of speech starting here, and but you stay real back, you stay settled with it. So I think that would be helpful. Something just popped into my mind that you didn't mention about weekends practicing for lay people. You described it as though they work seven days a week and it'd be hard to get right. them to the But on the weekends, people, instead of clicking on a football game, could sit and then walk and then right. sit again. Right. Continuity blocking. Right, right. Right. I'm gonna, uh, just at the end of this little um, discussion period, I'm going to mention a little bit about the different kinds of retreats. Sure. Uh, good idea. 
It'll be seven days a week. <laughs> no. I, but it seems that you, you get to an extreme if you do it all. No, that, uh, that was a little joke. <laughs> you know, anything, it's almost anything that takes us out of our usual pattern will make us more attentive. And just, you know, the restraint of that energy, which is always going out, just to conserve it. <laughs> Something I'd like to put out, I don't, I don't know if this is the appropriate time, because it usually stirs up a lot for people, but... One of the words which you find in the teachings over and over and over again, I mean, almost maybe more than any other word, uh, is that of restraint. But my experience with talking about restraint is that people do not like to hear that word, you know, because it's associated with repression and suppression and uptightness and all those things which obviously are unskillful and not very productive. That's not what restraint means in this sense. It's not, you know, kind of suppressing everything. Rather, a better way of understanding it would be the conservation of energy. Right? Instead of our energy always going out through the force of desire, through the force of speech, or in whatever form it does, through eating, you know, excessively. Instead of our energy pouring out, leaking out, Restraint in this sense means conserving it. You know? And as we restrain our energy in different ways, what you find is that a tremendous strength and power and joy is built up because we're not, we're not depleting our energy. And so that is, that's one example. Just you know, keeping silence at times would be a kind of restraint or not overeating or maybe missing one meal a day is a kind of restraint. And not always going to fulfill the desire is a kind of restraint. But do it, you absolutely must practice it with a tremendous gentleness, a gentleness and a kind of joy in the strength that it's creating. Because where we've gotten mixed up with it is for many of us it's just become this judgmental you know, oh, I shouldn't be doing that, and I shouldn't be doing that, and I'm so bad. And that's not the spirit of it at all. And it's really, it's a cause of a, a tremendous amount of happiness and, and personal power. I had the thought that it might be fun to try uh, just spending like a day a week just saying one sentence at a time. <laughs> you know, like, you know, you get started, and then before you know it, you've spoken a whole page of garbage, you know. Just to see what right. would happen. That way, it'd be much less obvious right. than going around with a pad or you know, right. something. Right. There are many ways. Everybody, be creative. You know, there are lots of ways to play with our experience. In whatever way works with the sense of conserving our energy, you know, and creating that sense of strength and making us more attentive and mindful is, is helpful. Would you say there's just a limited amount of energy that we have, and so that restraint in terms of a lot of different things helps to save this limited amount of energy? Or I, I never quite understood 
it, it seemed to me that there, even if I got pretty wild, there was more energy. Right. <laughs> I don't think there's a limited amount of energy, although ultimately I don't know whether there's, you know, it's limited or not. But very often there's limited access to the energy. Um, and also, it's not only the it's not only the conservation of the energy, but it, it also uh, it changes the quality of it. You know, it's like. As we don't keep, you know, depleting it in ways that are not particularly constructive, I mean, there are lots of ways of using our energy that are wonderful, you know, and, and you, you feel more empowered by it. And there are other ways which we use our energy and we feel weakened. Right? That's what I'm talking about. That we don't have to keep depleting, depleting ourselves in ways that weaken us. And that when we pay attention to what those are and conserve it, we're gaining more strength, and the quality of it gets very fine. Yeah. You've spoken a lot about uh, the practice in and out of a, a household world uh, for our own benefit. Um, I found that by doing such things as centering in the body while I'm speaking, at work in particular, that it significantly enhances the whole mood of the process that's going on. And it's an excellent technique for uh, bringing some spirit to a process that otherwise is pretty dead. Yeah. Actually, it'd be interesting in kind of the, uh, you know, the, the joining together of the Sangha at different times, to really share the ways in which all of you have uh, discovered work for you. Because it's, it is a tremendously uh, interesting creative process, and there's no one, no one form for it. And that kind of sharing, I think, would be extremely valuable. Just let me say a few, like a few announcements, and then Alan will close with leading some metta meditation. Um, as Bhikkhu Wanasaro su suggested, it's a good thing to keep in mind, not only in terms of the daily sitting uh, practice, whether you come here or set up your own you know, intensive uh, retreat situation in your house or in a cabin, wherever, you don't have to wait for a course. You know, you could do a whole day of sitting and walking, or a weekend, or a week, or a month, whatever. You don't have to feel that you're dependent on a particularly structured situation uh, outside of yourselves. Although, obviously, these, these courses, I hope, are helpful. Um, a few of you had asked about the three-month retreat.
I guess all I want to say about it is that it's a good one. You know, it's real good. If you have the time and the energy and the motivation, it's pretty much more of the same of this. It's not, it's not very different, although the form changes slightly. But mostly it's just sitting and walking for instead of nine days, 80 days. You get into a very timeless space with it. You know, after the first few weeks and you stop, you realize the counting toward the end is, is <laughs> it's just, it's too much. Right? The mind finally gives that one up and, and then just settles into being present and you get into this rhythm of real timelessness. People get addicted to them. Um, we have people coming back over and over again for the three-month course. Anyway, just to share with you that whenever it's appropriate, if, if ever, for you, it's really a wonderful experience. Uh, Jacqueline, who most of you probably know, who teaches with us a lot, and teaches here, uh, asked me to announce a couple of things. She's going to be teaching in Boston um, in the fall uh, through Interface. And she's going to be teaching two classes in uh, introductory meditation class and also a class for people who are already into practice. So those of you who live in the Boston area and would like that kind of connection uh, with a teacher, that would be a really good opportunity to do that. And as an introduction for people who have not done any practice yet. Also on Saturday, uh, there's a conference on women in Buddhism at the Providence Zen Center. And Jacqueline is leading, uh, she's giving a talk and leading some sittings and panel discussion along with uh, women from different of the Buddhist uh, traditions, Zen and Tibetan. Is there going to be some information about that? There's some information both about these classes and this conference on women in Buddhism out uh, either in the dining room or on the table. So if you're interested, um, you might look at that. It, yeah. I thought the first time you said Boston, and the second time you said Boston. Who is she going to be? Boston. <laughs> 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 okay. Yeah. Um, I have an announcement. Yeah. Um, someone on staff who couldn't be here asked me to um, make an announcement, and I just thought while Joseph was talking of another way to really <coughs> help your practice is to live with someone who sits and walks a lot. And is <laughs> <laughs> I think some of you know what I'm referring to. We have, um, I think, five little furry creatures <laughs> who are very quiet and they're wonderful sitters. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of merit. 
ถึงอาการดังนั้นท่านก็ได้ฟังเรื่องราวของการเรียนรู้ของการเรียนรู้ของการเรียนรู้ของการเรียนรู้ของการเรียนรู้ของการเรียนรู้ของการเรียนรู้ของการเรีย